this portion of uh, Scripture for us. Ecclesiastes, we'll read from the beginning of the chapter. Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, reading from verse 1. <clears throat> Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. And the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it vanity of vanities says the preacher all is vanity Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Amen. Thank you, Will. Now we're going to uh, sing once again to God's praise. So we're going to sing this time uh, in Psalm 119. We're going to sing from verse 129 to 136. And boys and girls, uh, this will be your opportunity to go out to Sunday school. Uh, So we'll sing and then you can go out. But boys and girls, we're going to do something slightly different later on. So especially for some of the older classes, what we're going to do at the end of the service, somebody is going to come out after the sermon, uh, the sermon and they're going to get you and they're going to bring you back in and you're going to get an opportunity to watch the ordination and induction. Okay, so that's the plan. So you will go out as normal. You'll have Sunday school and then somebody will come and uh, bring you back in. So... Uh, the boys and girls can go out and we are going to sing to God's praise Psalm 119 your statutes Lord are wonderful so I obey them from my heart your words as they unfold give light and truth to simple minds in part and the tune that we're singing to is there's a congregation and please join me as we pray
Father, we do pray for those children as they go out to Sunday school just now. Uh, we ask, Lord God, that uh, these next moments as the Sunday school teachers teach them from your word, we pray that those moments would be uh, so significant in their lives. We pray that just now that you would confront them with the truths of, of the gospel and that you would give them receptive hearts. And as we pray that for the children, we pray it for ourselves. Lord, your statutes are wonderful. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of that this morning. And we pray, Lord God, that you would speak to your people. And we pray that you would change us. That today that you would make us more like Christ. And we pray that you would do this for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. If I were to say to you, a Scotsman, an Englishman, and an Irishman went into a bar, I think everyone would know what sort of thing at least was lying ahead of us, wouldn't you? These three characters, this sort of set up, is used very often to tell the most pathetic of jokes, isn't it? Uh, jokes where the Englishman is portrayed as being entirely normal. The Scotsman is portrayed usually as being incredibly tight with money. And the poor Irishman, the Irishman is usually portrayed as being what, I don't know, backwards, uh, muddled, a little bit upside down shall we say? Well, of course, these stereotypes are utterly ludicrous and ridiculous. Of course they are. Uh, but in some ways, I do feel a little bit like the Irishman uh, in the joke this morning. Maybe you can see why. We're taking a little break from our sermon series today, and we're going into a different book of the Bible, but to where in that book are we going? Do you see? Are we going to the start of this book? No. Are we going to one of the famous high points in this book? No. This morning, out of nowhere, we are jumping to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, right to the conclusion. Is this not a bit backwards, a bit muddled, a bit upside down? Is it not? Well, just in case you think I've completely lost the plot, let me at least state a couple of hopes for this time together this morning. Two hopes. Get these. First of all, the first hope is that this section of Scripture that we'll study will whet our appetite to go from here and to read and study the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay, so this ending, this concluding section, it has an awful lot to say about actually the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes. The book as a whole is almost summed up here. So you can see the, the hope, can you? The hope is that we study the conclusion God prompts us in these moments to go out of here, to go home even this afternoon and to read and study more of this great book and to hear something of the wisdom of our God. That's hope number one. Second hope. The hope is that we will see how relevant this section is to this special service that we're a part of this morning. You see, this conclusion to Ecclesiastes, it doesn't just neatly, beautifully sum up the book, 
This conclusion has an awful lot to say about the nature and the importance of pastoral ministry. So you can see it, can't you? What's the hope this morning? As we later on seek to ordain and induct will into pastoral ministry, before that, our hope and surely our prayer is that in these moments, God will speak to us by his Holy Spirit and speak to us about the nature of this calling that Will has received in his life. You with me? As a Scotsman who has lived in England and who currently feels like an Irishman from a joke, can I invite you, please, to make sure that you have Scripture in front of you. Please turn with me uh, to the end, the very, very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And first of all here, if you have it in front of you, I want us to think about or notice the graft, the graft of uh, pastoral ministry, the graft of ministry. Okay, so we've opened the book. We open to chapter 12 to this conclusion. Now, the, the, the first question I think that we have to answer is really quite simply, who has written this? Who has written, not just the book of Ecclesiastes, no, but who has written this very conclusion? Now, you can see it. Maybe if we project verse 9, or if you have a look at verse 9, do you notice that the grammar changes? Do do you notice how things change from verse 9? And do you notice that this conclusion is now written all of a sudden in the third person? Do you notice that? So look what is said. It says, beside being wise, the preacher, or beside being wise, the author of Ecclesiastes has, also, has taught. So do, do you see that the author has been spoken of at a distance? It's in third person. It's almost like this is functioning almost like a postscript, you know, tagged on to the end of the book. So, so we have to ask, okay, so what does that mean? Who has actually penned this or written this conclusion? Well, because of this change, I think it's true to say that the majority of scholars think that somebody else has written the ending to the book of Ecclesiastes. Everyone with me? So this would be the majority position. The majority position would be that Solomon, the king, King Solomon, he's gone and written Ecclesiastes and then somebody else has come in there at the end and they've finished it off. They've tagged on this conclusion. Now, hear me when I say that could be right. (laughs) Could be right, absolutely could be right. I am gonna suggest that maybe it's not right. I don't think it's right. Tell you why. This sort of ending that we're dealing with was actually reasonably common in the ancient world. So reasonably common for a person to write what they had to write and then at the end sum it up and write in the third person a conclusion. Do you see? In fact, is that not reasonably familiar to us? Isn't it? Especially to the students in here or to those of us who can maybe remember being students can you remember that, that far back, maybe? Uh, yeah, possibly. Think about it. If we were asked at university to, I don't know, to undertake an interview of somebody, what would the project involve? You would have to record that interview, wouldn't you? What was said, who said what, and then what, what, what would the guidance be? You would be asked to record your reflections on that interview, wouldn't you? Your perspective on what happened. And I think that's what we're dealing with here. Do you follow? So Solomon has written this book 
right at the end, what does he do? He follows it up with his reflections on the experience that he has had in putting this book together. Do you see who's written this? We don't know. I'm suggesting it's Solomon. Okay, you with me so far? Okay. Right, second question, what, has, what does Solomon say here? If he's written it, what does he say? Well, I don't want you to miss this. Understand this, that the main point from the start of this conclusion is the incredible effort that Solomon has had to put in to writing this book. Does everyone hear that? So the, the main point in the start of the conclusion is the graft the effort that he has had to put in to write in this book. In fact, you can see that. We've got verse 9 on the screen. Look at some of the terms that he uses. Have a look on the screen. What does he say? Look at the words. So he's saying words like, well, when I'm writing this book, weighing. What else has he had to do? He's had to study. Can you feel the sweat, you know, dripping off his brow? What else has he had to do? He's had to arrange things when he's putting this together. He's had to take great care. Do, Do you see? Do you see? So Solomon has had to break sweat in writing this book. Now, that's fine. That's great. But I think a further question is going to shed more light on this uh, for us. So I will turn this over to you rhetorically. I'll ask you this. What sort of book is Ecclesiastes? Rhetorically, I ask you, what sort of book is it? What would you say? No one is going to say it's a novel. None of of y'all are going to say that this is a work of fiction. You might say, Andy, Ecclesiastes is an example of wisdom literature in the Bible. Would you say that to me? Yeah. But hang on a minute. Look at the screen again. How is the author described to you? What is the author? He's a preacher. So I'm asking you, what sort of book? What is Ecclesiastes? Do you see? This is a sermon. See, the book of Ecclesiastes seems to be a sermon that Solomon has preached and preached towards the end of his life. And doesn't that make this conclusion then truly remarkable? Because I'm asking you, what have you got in your hands right now? Listen, you have divinely inspired comment on the efforts of sermon preparation. That's what we're dealing with this morning. Solomon is speaking about the sheer incredible graft and effort that he's had to put in preparing to preach. Now, let's do this. If we take the end of Ecclesiastes, let's take it right into the room and for ourselves. There is an obvious person this morning that this might seem incredibly relevant to, and at the risk of potentially embarrassing him, I do want to say to you, well, pay heed to what you have in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I mean, think about it with me for a second. If even a divinely inspired author of Scripture has to put in blood, sweat, and tears in order to prepare to preach what does that say about Will and myself and others? It tells us that we are going to have to bust our guts <laughs> in order to try and preach resting in the power of the Holy Spirit. This clearly, evidently applies to Will 
But I want to add to this because this also applies to all of us in this church here in Dundee, this church at St. Peter. See, as someone who has spent lots of time in various churches and in various theological institutions over the year, you need to take it from me, please. That expository preaching has fallen on hard times in recent years. Now, Hopefully you know me well enough by now that I'm not one for these sweeping, big, grand, negative, critical statements. No. But I think we have to accept that you and I as Christians, we live at a time where even in circles like ours, expository preaching is viewed sometimes as secondary in pastoral ministry. But honestly, I think expository preaching viewed as being sometimes peripheral in, in pastoral ministry, you perhaps heard it. What do we want a minister to do? Oh, everything else, perhaps, but not wasting time in the study, you know, rightly dividing the, the word of truth. Now, as a congregation of God's people, how should we react to that? How should we respond, Christian friends? Well, yeah, we, we should hold our ground. Don't you think? It's appears we, we should insist upon this, but I want you to understand that we can do more. I want you to realize that you can play a part, a crucial part, in sermon preparation. Now, maybe you can see what I mean by that. If preparing, as we're seeing here, if it involves time, diligence, and efforts, can we not, as Christians, support that by regularly, faithfully praying for the preaching in the life of our church? In fact, I want to specifically challenge you as a congregation this morning. Will is beginning ministry proper today. Let me tell you what that looks like for Will. Each day, every day, Will is wrestling with the text. And he is seeking to be led by the Holy Spirit. My challenge to you is, can we not as a church match that? And can we not seek, can we not resolve even this morning, to pray on a daily basis? to pray for the preparation, to pray for the preaching on a Sunday that God might take this and bless it in the life of St. Peter's and to the glory and honor of his great name. You see the graft here, for this is graft in which we can all share. Second of all, we see the goad, G-O-A-D, the goad of pastoral ministry. Now, perhaps you can remember how we started this sermon. We started it with a hope that from this section we might be propelled out to go and read more of the book of Ecclesiastes. I actually think that we can extend that hope some, uh, somewhat. See, as we move on, what Solomon does, he moves from talking about the effort and the graft and writing this book, and he moves to talk about the nature of the book of Ecclesiastes. And do you know what is really exciting? What he goes on to say here is equally true of the rest of God's word. So do you see how we can extend the hope? Actually, the hope is this morning that God, as we look at what's said next, God might propel you and I, not just to go away from here and read Ecclesiastes, that God might propel us out into the world to read much, much more of Holy Scripture. So what do we ask? Well, what does Solomon say? What does he say about God's word? Now, I'm going to mention or point you to three things Solomon says about Scripture. I want you to make sure you get them. Three things. First, 
tells us that Scripture exists to move us. Can we project verse 11? If you look at it, maybe in the copy of Scripture you've got, do you see a strange word in verse 11? Is that word I've mentioned, the word goad? It's not a word that we use a lot, is it? Can I tell you uh, how goad functions in my life? (laughs) So what happens as a minister of the gospel is that I will encounter the word goad in sermon preaching as I'm working through books. What do I do? I work out what a goad is, and then, because I'm an idiot, I go away and forget exactly what a goad is. Okay, so just in case you're as daft as your minister, what exactly is a goad? What are we dealing with here? Well, a goad is a a long staff. Wait for it. It's a staff that usually had lots of sharp nails sticking out the top of the staff of the stick. Sounds ferocious, doesn't it? Sounds like a weapon of war. I want you to understand that it was not a weapon of war. You must have noticed in the reading the mention of shepherds. Did you notice that in this reading? That's absolutely critical. What is a goad? A goad is something that a shepherd would use for the movement of sheep. So a goad was used for the separation of livestock or to move sheep along a path or to move sheep along a road. Now, do you see what Solomon is saying? by calling God's word a God. He is saying to us that this book that we have here is like no other book. That this is the book that God uses for the movement of his people. If you and I, honestly, if we leave this place, even this afternoon, we go study, we go and read God's word, what might he do? He might shepherd us along the path of sanctification, that path that leads to Christ-likeness, sometimes like a goad, let's be honest, to our discomfort and to our pain. It's the first thing. Scripture exists to, to move us. Second of all, Scripture exists to reassure us. Uh, this week, um, my son and I were hard at work. Uh, Colin and I were moving his room about, sorting out his bedroom. Okay, so you've probably done this. If you're a parent, you've you've known the joys of this. You know, first of all, you have to tidy the room. Uh, Then you have to move the furniture. We were moving furniture into the room, and then we're moving furniture around the room. And it's, you know, put up a mirror, put up a painting, you know, get everything sorted out. And the room is looking just absolutely tremendous until it gets messy Again, okay, now as I've done this, I have come to the most profound conclusion as I've engaged in DIY. Here's my profound conclusion there is nothing better on this earth than a secure roll plug. (laughs) There is nothing better, okay, nothing better. There's nothing worse than an insecure roll plug, right? You know, you drill it and you put that little bit of plastic in, but it's not quite fitting. And you know the mirror is going to hit the deck at some stage. But, oh, when it fits, you know, and you know you get the raw plug in, you screw that, and it's going to, you know if you hang a piano from it, that it's going to go absolutely nowhere. It's beautiful. And you might think, I've lost it completely. But really, 
Is that not what Solomon is saying to you here about Holy Scripture? I mean, look what he says in verse 11. So he looks back and he says, the sayings of this book, they are what? Nails, firmly fixed. You see, it's Ecclesiastes, but it's by extension, all of God's Holy Scripture. It is something, Solomon is saying to you, that is trustworthy and sure and reliable. And do you not, as a Christian, rejoice in that when you think about your world today? Because with the internet and and Twitter, all of these news apps, what's happening just now? You and I are bombarded with all of these different opinions about stuff, aren't we? You know, one view about mass and another and COVID. And then what? Climate change? One view, another view, and economic policy. Sometimes, let's be honest, we don't know what to do. We don't know where to look or who to believe. And what does God remind you of right now? Here is where we need to look. In this book are sayings true. This is wisdom. And it is wisdom in this book in which we can rely, in which we can believe. So scripture exists to move us, it exists to reassure us. And the third of these three things is scripture exists to satisfy us. Because if you look at verse 12, and we put it up, isn't there a warning? You know, Solomon says, beware, and I want you to think about what he says here, please, very carefully. He says, beware of anything beyond these sayings. So do you see what Solomon's saying? He's saying, everything that we need, right? He's saying everything in life, everything that we need for truth and wisdom is to be found in Holy Scripture and to be found in this book. What do you think about that? Maybe if you're visiting this morning, can I ask what you are thinking of that? Do you not think, perhaps, this is so arrogant? Do you think it sounds so boastful, bumptious? You know, Solomon's saying of something that he has penned, that it is sufficient for life? Do you think this is arrogant? Oh, please notice to whom Solomon gives all the credit. Do you not notice it at the end of verse 11? It's not to him. He says, and all of this is given by one shepherd. And we all in this congregation know exactly who that shepherd is. We only need to think back two weeks. Who did Jacob say the shepherd was? It's God. God himself. You see it, don't you? Solomon here is speaking of the divine inspiration of Holy Scripture. I want you to get this phrase. Solomon is saying that all of God's word is breathed out and breathed out by the majestic Lord. Now, as we apply this, I, I hope and honestly I pray that from this, Ecclesiastes 12, you really are propelled to go out of St. Peter's and go away and to read and study your Bible. And if you're a Christian in here, I simply want to ask you this question. Has your Bible reading waned? Now think about the, the patterns of the last week and the last month. Has it actually been a while since you have sat down, and not for preparation for Sunday school or preparation for a Bible study, but just for your own soul and just to encounter the living God? Has it been a while 
since you studied and properly came and studied a section of God's word, has it? And consider what God is telling you about Scripture here. This is a love letter, but it's a love letter that God has breathed out for you, his child. Go from here, read and encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. But given the ordination uh, today, is there not something else that we at St. Peter's could say, should say? Like, I, I reckon that if we as a church if we got together, had a congregational meeting to try and come up with a statement that we would like to pass on to Will on the occasion of his ordination. There's lots of things that we would want to say to a new minister, don't you think? There's lots of advice. We're good at giving advice. There's lots of advice and things we could say to Will. But is this not something, a message that we could rally around? That, friends, God's word is what God's people desperately need. You know, we think we need lots and lots of things, but is it not God's word that we long for? Is it not God's word that we need? And so, Will, again at the risk of embarrassing you, I want you to appreciate that this is your good. And I would exhort you and encourage you to use this in all aspects of pastoral ministry. So whether that be visiting people, whether it be leading a court of God's church to shepherd God's flock by t- to shepherd it with God's word. And if you do that, then in grace surely it is that this one shepherd will bless your labor. And then the third thing, briefly, we've seen what? We've seen the graft. We've seen this goad. The third thing is the goal of pastoral ministry. Now, if we were as a church to try and consider the most significant matters in all of human history, if we were to try and think about maybe the question that uh, people have wrestled with most down the years, I think this would be top of the tree, top of the pile. You ready for it? What's the biggest question that people have wrestled with? Is it not this? What is the meaning of life? That's the thing, isn't it? Philosophers, thinkers, down the centuries, they've wrestled with this. What is the meaning of life? Now, there tend to be at least a couple of approaches to that question, I'm sure you'd agree. Today, people like to give sort of soundbite answers to that question. I read a a corker uh, this week. So the question was, what is the meaning of life? Here's a soundbite answer. Life is about embracing our significant insignificance. What verbiage, right? You know, there's a a soundbite answer. That's one approach, a soundbite answer. Is it not also the case that many people view that question as being unanswerable? That there is, you cannot answer this question, what is the meaning of life? The, The Pulitzer Prize winner, John Updike says this. So he's asked, what is the meaning of life? And with all of his wisdom, he comes up with, the mystery of being is a permanent mystery. He says it's unanswerable. Or if that's too highfalutin for us in Dundee, which I don't think it is, you can have George Lucas from Star Wars. So he's asked, George, what is the meaning of life? He comes up with, life is 
beyond reason. You see that so many people today would buy into this idea, the meaning of life that is beyond us. We simply cannot answer this. Well, against that backdrop, is it not remarkable to see how Solomon ends this book? Do you notice what he does here? Solomon claims to give an answer to this, not just an answer. He claims to give the answer. He talks here about something he views as being, wait for it, the whole duty of man. So the whole purpose of mankind and humanity. So we want to know what that is, the meaning of life. So look with me at verse 13. Let's put it up. What's verse 13? Do you see? He says, the end of the matter. All has been certain. Solomon, what is the duty, the whole duty of man? And he says this. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. Do you see what he's saying? Solomon is saying it's the ultimate purpose of humanity is to live in reverent fear of God, to submit by faith to our creator and to reorientate our whole lives around God and the honor of his name. Now, whether you agree with that or not, you can see that we are dealing with a significant matter in conclusion. So as we close, I just want to make two points. One, I want to show you the incentive to do that and submit by faith to God. Look at how Solomon closes in verse 14. Why should we fear God? Verse 14, what does he say? He says, because you will be judged. Verse 14, he says, fear God for God will bring. Please think about this for your own life. God will bring every deed in a judgment with every secret thing, whether it's good or evil, everything brought into to the light. I mean, is that not for you a weighty concern, a weighty thought this morning? It's the idea that, that very soon, I was going to say God is going to judge the world. And that's true, but can I adapt it this morning? Very soon God is going to judge you. This God that we're dealing with here soon is going to use this goad to separate the sheep from the goats. And this God we're dealing with here, this good God, but this just God, he's going to separate those who live by faith from those who have not lived by faith. Don't you feel the incentive to fear God? And then the second thing with which we end is how we can have this meaning, this, this purpose. Because there's a lot of people in the room, right? And, and some of you have, have arrived because you're here for, for Will's ordination. Other people may be just passing through. And honestly, we're live. And so there could be people listening on right now who simply do not know how to have this relationship with God, this reverent awe before God, like you maybe see, oh, it's necessary. And man, you want it. You long to be right with God, but you sit there and think, well, how do I have this? You need to hear me. As I say to you, just one name. And it is a name that stands so much higher than any other name. It's one taller than any other name. You need to hear the name Jesus of Nazareth, 
Jesus Christ is who you need. Do you understand that we simply cannot live the way that we were made to live? Sin has put paid to all of that. But what has God done? Listen to me, please. Remember the phrase, listen. This God who has breathed out Holy Scripture, he has come and breathed amongst us to deliver us from sin. Think of the magnitude of this. This almighty judging God that we have in Ecclesiastes 12. He has taken upon himself flesh. He's walked amongst us in order to secure for us salvation. What does Jesus say? Who does he claim to be? We look at him. Who is this Jesus? And in John 10, he says to you, I shepherd. I am the one shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And now if you will only turn to him, turn from your sin, what happens by God's grace? Listen, you will be granted not just access to this God. Wait, it gets better. You will be granted not even just forgiveness by this God. It's beautiful. I thought that is that you, if you turn to Jesus Christ, will be granted relationship, peace-filled, eternal, loving relationship with God. Do you hear the name Jesus? I hope you do. I hope that every single one of us hears that name right now. And what we do is we bow in our hearts and we praise the exalted Christ. And I hope that in this ministry, that is soon to begin, it is that name, the name of Jesus that is consistently and humbly lifted high. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Oh Lord, as we think about uh, how a serious the Bible authors are about Scripture. Lord God, we do come to you and confess our sin and how nonchalant we are with Scripture. And Lord, surely as as a congregation, we come and we ask your forgiveness for the fact that we don't come to study Scripture, that we might hear from, from you, the living God. But we are more grateful, Lord God, for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you that uh, all wisdom is in him, from him. We thank you that we owe every element of our salvation to Jesus Christ. And we do pray all of these things in his precious, matchless name. Amen.